This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. Hey, and a good nerve Shabbos. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm Mashi Lipsker. This is 101.9 High FM. And it's Erev Shabbos of a very special Shabbos, following on a special Shabbos and a special week, and looking forward to a wonderful week, a wonderful month. Indeed, it's a pleasure to be with you today and to share with you things that are really very close to my heart. The Parsha that we will read this week follows on that wonderful Parsha last week, where Hashem, the Almighty, revealed Himself at Sinai and gave the Torah to almost three million people, revelation at Sinai, where everyone experienced that revelation without a doubt, where everyone saw it, heard it, experienced it, knew that it had really happened. In fact, we are told that every soul that would ever be born to the Jewish nation or a soul that would choose to join the Jewish nation according to God's law, in other words, a proper Jewish conversion, they too were there at Sinai. They too replied, yes, we want this. We will dedicate ourselves to keeping God's law and to spreading the message that God intended to partner with God to make this world a dwelling place for him. And then this week's parsha, Mishpatim, seems to be an anticlimax. Suddenly we're confronted with detail, the detail of the laws, the halakha, how one is meant to behave in this practical world, laws of damages, laws of interaction between man and man, the seeming minutia. But it's not minutia. It's actually the detail, and the glory is in the detail, which is something that we need to take to heart. People pursue goals, fantasies, dreams, and very often miss the point. In fact, it brings to mind a story of the great Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, when he was still a young man and still being supported in Torah study by his father-in-law, where he once saw a fellow Jew racing across the marketplace. Rebid, he said, where are you running? And the man in Yiddish answered, Ich jog sich noch mein Parnose. I'm chasing my livelihood. In other words, I'm hustling. I'm out there in the business world. I've got to rush. I've got to make a deal. And he wisely said to him, Rebid, how do you know your Parnosa is ahead of you? Perhaps it's behind you and you're actually running away from it. What a thought that in life we might be pursuing grandiose, absolutely fantastic things, but we might be leaving behind the essence of life, what will really fill us up, what will really be meaningful, and the thing with which we can make a true contribution to the world, to mankind. It's something fascinating to think about. 
So the Parsha of Mishpatim comes right after the giving of the Torah at Sinai with flames, smoke, thunder, lightning, where all of creation stood still, where all of creation stopped moving, speaking, flowing. Everything became nullified in the face of God. And what did the people experience? They experienced level upon level in creation of godliness. They experienced it's not a mundane world. It's not an external superficial world. It's really a godly world. But that was God's gift. When he left the mountain, everything returned to natural, which is God's creation as well. And now in the Parsha, people need to deal in the world. They need to deal with man. They need to deal with property. They need to deal with the detail because that's where the godliness is. Before at Sinai, it was shown to them. The real work now in making it permanent is for us to reveal God in the here and now. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. A good night of Shabbos on Mashi Lipsker. And delighted to have with me in the studio today a very, very special guest, a dear friend and a lady of great standing, wonderful accomplishment in her own right. I have Louise Hager with me in the studio. Hi. Hello. Good morning. The, 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 the listeners and I, and I'm just saying that in anticipation, are delighted that you're here today. Delighted for, to be here too. <laughs> for a memorable few minutes in which we hope to cover a lot because you have so much to offer. Louise, you see, had a privilege that mm, I think one could kind of say, safely say that nobody in the world had. And that's unique. But then I think one has to say that each one of our relationships is unique. True. And that we have something that nobody else has, and that's God's intention, in order that we complete all of creation. And I love, my husband has pointed it out to me more than once, no two leaves have ever been created the same. We know this concept of no two snowflakes. Can you imagine no two people and no two relationships? God's infinity is expressed and glorified. Our minds cannot even absorb. And why is Louise here all the way from the UK? We've had the privilege of having Louise as our guest because this past week marked 30 years since the passing of the illustrious, distinguished Rebetzin Chaim Mushka Schneerson, the lifelong partner of our beloved Rebbe. And there is so much that one thinks about at a time like this. And Louise is going to share with us some treasures that absolutely uplift, inspire and enrich and are so practical at the same time. So who was the Rebetzin? The Rebetzin herself 
was the daughter of the previous Rebbe. And she was born in 1901 in the town of Babinovich, which is very close to the town city of Lubavitch. And Chabad had its home. The seat of Chabad was in Lubavitch for 102 years. And in 1915, they were forced to leave and they moved to Rostov on the Don River. And then in 1924, they moved to Leningrad. The Rebetzin took an active part in 1927 in getting her father freed from a horrific imprisonment. And at the end of 1927, after Simcha's Terah, she left together with her family and they moved to Riga. My mom is sitting right here and she sighs with great happiness because mommy lived in Riga and she was educated in Riga. Mommy went to a wonderful school called Torah Vederecheretz, which was run by Rabbi Chodakov, who later became the main secretary of the Rebbe. And so we're in the presence here of someone who saw the previous Rebbe, the Rebbe, someone who saw Rabbi Chodakov. Welcome, Mommy. Before the Rebetzin left Leningrad, she and the Rebbe became engaged. But they only got married after leaving Russia, got married in Warsaw. And that was at the end of 1928. And the young couple then moved to Berlin till 1933, then on to Paris. And after the Nazi occupation in Paris, they moved to Nice. This remarkable woman was not well known, not even in Chabad circles. The Rebetzin and the Rebbe were trapped in war-torn Europe. Her father, the illustrious previous Rebbe, reached America under very, very horrific circumstances after being caught in war-torn Warsaw and eventually arriving in March 1940 in America. And then with great, great effort and put pressure wherever they could, he worked to free his middle daughter, the Rebetzin Chaimushka, and her illustrious husband, our Rebbe-to-be. And in June of 1941, they reached the shores of America. The Rebbe became Rebbe in 1950, with the Rebbe in 51. The previous Rebbe passed away in 50. Many Chassidim consider that there was no break in the, in the successorship. And in 1951, the Rebbe became Rebbe. She was a mystery to most of Chabad. She didn't come to shul. People didn't see her. But those who knew her tell an entirely different story. In January 1988, she passed away, nearly 87 years old. 15,000 people attended her funeral. Many flew in from all corners of the earth, of the world, scrambling to get on flights to be there. She's buried in the Montefiore Cemetery in Queens, next to her illustrious grandmother, the Rebetzin Sternesara, and her mother, the Rebetzin Hamadina, uh, 
and opposite her father, the previous Rebbe. But I read all that in a book. And in front of me, I have my very special, privileged to say, special friend. But that's not her claim to fame. Mrs. Louise Hager has many claims to fame. But today, we'll begin by speaking about her relationship with the Rebbitson. How did that happen? Louise, how did you come to meet the Rebbitson when almost nobody met the Rebbitson? It was and remains the, the greatest, one of the greatest gifts of my life. It started, the story goes back to 1964, when my father was diagnosed and was very, very sick. And all that the, we lived in London, and all that the doctors could offer him was a very controversial operation in Paris that had it gone wrong, would have left him damaged beyond repair. Um, my parents had supported Chabad for many years, and because they knew of the Rebbe, they heard of the Rebbe, they flew to New York to get his advice. To this day, no one knows exactly what the Rebbe said to my father, but he came home to London, did not have an operation, and made a full recovery. Six months later, he returned to New York to say two words. Those two words were thank you. He wanted to say that in person because the Rebbe had literally saved his life and therefore our family. And if you think back to 1965, people did not get on a plane transatlantic journey just to say two words but my father was so indebted to the rabbi he felt this is something the least he could do at, at the time we didn't realize that a lot that the rabbi saw he shared with the rabbitson who was his life partner in every single aspect of his very full life and my parents received a message um, through rabbi shemtov who was the head of mystery in london at the time uh, to say that if they ever returned to new york would they come and see the Rabbitson? They had no idea how private she was and what her honor this was. And when they did eventually go back to New York and did meet her, she used the word, she said, I was intrigued. The Rebbe, like the Rabbitson, the Rabbitson like the Rebbe, spoke English fluently, but with a very heavy Russian accent. And she used the word, she said, I was intrigued to meet the people who cared enough to come back and thank my husband. She always used, the, she called the Rebbe my husband. Um, and she went on. She said, thousands of people write to my husband with all sorts of problems, worries about children, financial problems, health problems. But very rarely does somebody actually let us know when there's been a good outcome. And when you think about that, it's actually quite um, ex you know, understandable. Often when we pass through difficult times and we come through them, it's very painful to go back and face them. And so we, we often do not express thanks to the people who have actually helped us through. And this ideal, it's a very positive ideal in our wonderful Judaism in our life, is called Hakaratatov, to express thanks um, and how important it is to do that. Um, to one's husband, to one's wife, in any relationship, to acknowledge if somebody has helped you. Um, and this is what my father did. Through those two, two words came about the most beautiful, close friendship with the, both the Rebbe and the Rebbitson that, as I said, enriches each and every day of our lives and has done since 1965. Wow. That's very moving indeed. So many aspects of that story just talk to us about the quality of life. 
We're so busy running around. Yeah. Very often we leave the treasures behind. <coughs> That's an amazing, amazing story. How old were you at the time when, when you met the Rabbitson? So I met the Rabbitson uh, a few years later. I was 14 years old. Uh, my parents took me to New York. It was Purim time. And naturally, I had heard so much about her. I was very eager to see her. And I'll never forget my, my, that first time I saw her. The Rabbitson was tiny in stature, but an extremely regal figure. Beautifully dressed, she sent she she opened the door in a beautiful I'll never forget it black Chanel type suit, exquisite gold and coral jewelry, elegance to her fingertips, and led us to a beautifully laid table, where she made us immediately feel at home. She started to ask me about school, what was I enjoying, what were my hobbies, and I have to admit I wasn't a particularly keen student at the time, and I felt a little bit awkward, but I, I left there with um, an aim to try and give her some nachos to try and do better in school, because again, the Reb and the Rabbits almost morph into one, one can almost say, they, they shared so many characteristics when there are many pictures of the Rebbe leaning forward, listening when people talk to, to him. And this was what she did. She she leant forward and as if she was almost absorbing the, the, the information I was giving her to store it up, to, to she cared with every, you know, everything that was going on in my life. I was just a young 14-year-old girl. And yet there was an, a connection, a very, very strong connection. And... She could. I have heard subsequently in one hears that didn't matter who she saw, whether it was the greatest rabbi or the youngest child, she was able to to tap into them, reach them, and make a lasting impression. <laughs> so it actually shifts our entire perspective on the Rebbe. Very much so. Yeah. What, yeah. what comes to mind is one thinks of the Rebbe as Sinai. Yeah. And one thinks perhaps of... A woman in the home as Mishpatim, the detail. And we saw detail in the Rebbe, but only in terms of the Chsidim, us. But when you think of a relationship, a marriage, my husband, and that he shared so much with her, but it makes a lot of sense because Hasidic teaching explains to us about wholeness and completion that man and woman complete one another. There's the the malchus of the woman. We speak about it. We speak about the six days of the week and the seventh day is Shabbos, the man going out to work, the woman epitomizing the home, etc. But it's theoretical until we hear a story like this. They lived it. They lived totally, hmm. totally. So what motivated you to want to... Give her nachas. I can't put it into words. It was it was something that I just felt I wanted to do spontaneously. So I started writing to her. I was then 14 and started writing to her, um, telling what was going on in school and if any exams were happening. Um, basically, sort of uh, just, just keeping her in touch. And I had no idea, again, that the uh, my father was, again, once with the Rebbe, and the Rebbe mentioned something that he could only have known from reading my letters. So I realized that the Rebbeson was sharing my letters with the Rebbe, showing him, mm. uh, which sort of... You know, freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> but at the same time, I was very touched that she did that. Mm. 
And our relationship grew in the most sort of natural way. I, I went after, I didn't see her for another six years. I went back when I was married with my husband. And we would go periodically. Um, and each time I learned so much in such a, I, I didn't realize I was learning it. I, I didn't, I was absorbing the way she acted, the way she conducted her life. And they were lessons that have, that stay with me. So, for instance, um, if we look back to the 80s, when the 70s and 80s, when the Rebbe was absolutely revolutionary in encouraging, he, he started the mitzvah campaign. So we started with tefillin, that, um, that men should be encouraged to put on tefillin. And then when it came to the women, that us women should go out and encourage other Jewish ladies to light Shabbat candles, to talk about ca- keeping a kosher home, about family purity. And so many of my friends were doing this with tremendous success. They used to go to the shopping malls or they would stand near the Jewish shops or go to schools wherever. And they were incredible. They were powerhouses. And at the time, I was a young mother with, with a small, the young family. And there was no way that I could do this. And I felt terribly inadequate because this was obviously something that Rebbe believed in very strongly. It was obviously a very successful and very important campaigns. So what was wrong with me? Why couldn't I do it? And I would share this with her. And I would say, you know, why? Why? What is wrong with me? And I, she would laugh. And when she laughed, she laughed with a very deep, warm laugh. And she would say, Louise, what, what are you worried about? I know that you're a young wife, you're a mother. You've got, you know, you've got small children at home. And I know that you love having guests in your home. And when they come and see a Shabbat or a yont of meal, and they see the warmth and, and joy and the Shabbat, you know, sitting, sitting around the table with the children swabbling sometimes a natural wonderful Shabbat life. Who knows how they'll be impressed and who knows what what impression will make on them now and in the future. But so she made me feel good about what I was doing. But she continued, and you never know, maybe one day you will be able to do something else. At the time, I couldn't have believed it. But what she did was she validated the stage of life that I was at. She made me feel good. She made me realize it's very important what I was doing as a wife and a mother, being the foundation of a home. And she made me live in the moment. Do what you're doing to the utmost. Whatever stage of life you are, give it your all. But at the same time, leave the door open because maybe other opportunities will come in the future. And actually, that is what happened. <laughs> and sitting here, I can't believe it. But it has. Wow. What I'm hearing is that she was a good listener. Wonderful. In other words, what I'm hearing is that she could meet people on their level, the 14-year-old, the young wife. She wasn't preachy. She was attractive by example. You just wanted to give her nachas and to be like her, and that when you win someone over by connecting with them through this listening, feeling their heart, you can take them to great places. You can. You sure can. You can fly. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. They they can get wings. And when you think of the people coming to the Rebbe for a dollar, for a, a few minutes, an exchange, a blessing, there was empowerment there because... Well, there was so much going on, but people say, you know, he looked into my soul. And that's quite synonymous with, he heard me, he got me. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. Pick and Pay Hyper has the following deal. 
go to Norwood and shop at Hypermarket, and you will get stamps. Collect free quality cookware by redeeming your stamps. For every hundred rand you spend at Pick and Pay Hyper, you'll get a stamp. Spend 200 rand, get two stamps. Collect them, stick them on your collector's card. Take your collector's card to Pick and Pay Hyper to redeem these cards, these stickers, to get wonderful VKB cookware. You can get a frying pan, a saucepan, a frying pan, a stir-fry pan. Let me tell you about it. I'm Ashi Lipsker. This is 101.9 High FM. And today, we'll be lighting candles at 6.15. We, for those of us who daven in a shul where they take on Shabbos a little bit later, we can wait until 6.37. The days are getting shorter. And remember, we always say... To make your Shabbos more meaningful, to make Hashem's Shabbos more meaningful, to add light in this world, phone a friend. Remind them that candles should be lit today at 6.15 at the right time with the right bracha. And the merit, the light will not only be for them and their family, but for you and yours and the entire world. In the studio today, I'm very privileged to have a very dear friend and a wonderful guest all the way from the UK, Mrs. Louise Hager, who enjoyed a personal relationship with the Rebbe's wife for 20 years, 20 perhaps of the most important years of her life, and in addition has taken the treasures, the wisdom that the Rebbeson imparted to great heights, has really plowed them back into the world. Louise, you were like a child, a grandchild to the Rebbitson. Yeah. The relationship was that close. I, I didn't have the privilege to know either of my grandmothers. And uh, one I'm named after my father's mother, and my mother's mother passed away just a few months after I was born. And so she became, so to speak, my grandmother. <laughs> and uh, I've been told that... She she felt the same way. Sure. Just, it was, but I'm bowled over not that you had that relationship, but that you were a vessel for that relationship. Because relationships don't just happen; they're not like the stamps at the hypermarket, <laughs> where you stick one in and now you have a relationship. To cultivate a relationship with the Rebbitson, with someone wise, witty, sense of humor, of great lineage, to cultivate a relationship with royalty, what does it take? She was so learned. She excelled at so much. You know, excelling at something doesn't mean that they write about it in the newspaper. I believe she had a most royal demeanor. You keep mentioning her sense of humor, and that she had this incredible consideration for all those which endeared her to everyone. How did you, a 14-year-old who had never met her before, have 
ultimately this incredible relationship? I, I think everything you said is undoubtedly true. She was royalty. She was extremely clever. She was sensitive. All those qualities. But above all, it, I think it was her warmth that drew me in. It was her non-judgmental. She didn't make me feel bad at the time when I was, as I said, a very, very uninterested student. And she somehow touched me to inspire me. And it was very subliminal. It wasn't like a flash of, of, of uh, thunder. It was, it was very gentle. Um, and I hear her words of encouragement every single day of my mm. life, which has now taken me, I'm very involved with an organization called Chai Cancer Care. Chai is, I'm sitting here in the Chai studio. Um, Chai Cancer Care is actually 28 years old. It was started by two remarkable ladies. One of them was my mother, Frances Weingarten, Alaa Shalom, and Susan Shipman, both of whom had personal bitter experience of what it means to live with the impact of a cancer diagnosis. My mother was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer, and thank God she survived for 28 years after two and a half years of extreme difficulty, surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. And Susan Shipman, whose young daughter Natalie was diagnosed with a brain tumor just before she was three years old and sadly died, passed away just before she was eight. Mm. And I had the privilege to be together, to be present when these two women met 28 years ago. And you could feel electricity in the air when they came together. They had a shared passion, a shared drive, a shared determination that others should not have to experience cancer without support. Because when they went through, there was nothing in the UK. No one talked about the world. No one said the word cancer. No one acknowledged it. And they felt very isolated, despite having a very large circle of friends and lots of support. But there was nowhere to go and talk to somebody else who had experienced what they had experienced. And they started in a bedroom, my mother's bedroom, with a very modest um, sum of money that they both put in. And now we look, we started with a telephone helpline, and now we have, 28 years later, we have 58 specialized support services, which include all range of, of counseling for individuals, for couples, for families, complementary therapies. I say complementary, not alternative, because everything we do has been endorsed by the medical profession. We have groups. We do... Um, we give advice on financial issues, on legal issues, on medical issues. And it has grown step by step in response to the need. As an organization, we say we don't replicate or duplicate, we innovate. So if there's a gap, we fill that hole. And it's with bittersweet, um, it's always very heavy emotions and bittersweet emotions when I, I say that we are currently supporting over 3,100 people. 60% is the patient, 40% of their family members. And I know it's so important to support the family members. Too often we would hear, I'm only the wife, I'm only the daughter, I'm only the son, I'm only the husband. I don't have cancer. I don't deserve support. But it makes sense. If you can give the loved one the tools and the strength, how much more can they help the patient? And we now have grown to 11 centers across the UK and internationally, there isn't anything quite like high anywhere in the world. So we do a lot of support internationally through Skype and telephone support. 
And it literally, my parent, my mother and Susan chose the name Chai, the Hebrew word for life, to describe this organization 28 years ago. And people actually thought they had lost their minds. My mother from prolonged illness and Susan from grief at losing a daughter. Because in those days, unfortunately, cancer was, for most people, terminal. Now, it's not enough, but 50% of people who are diagnosed make full recoveries. It's come a long way. As I say, it's still not enough. But people are living much longer. And my mother and Susan believed that whatever the outcome, and Susan said this despite losing her precious daughter who wasn't even eight years old, she said people have to find a way to carry on living. And they that's what Chai does. And my mother, as I said, survived for 26 years, but every day of her life was a struggle. The treatment that kept her alive left her with extreme life-limiting conditions. But such was the woman, an exceptional woman, that before she passed away, she was just going to be 84. She turned to me one day and she said, I thank God every single day that I had cancer. She said, because look what came from it. And if I tell you, Mashi, every day was a physical struggle. She really, really suffered. But she felt that she had gone, had been chosen almost by the Almighty to go through this experience to help others. And that's the passion. That's the drive that still motivates us every day. What more can we do? How better can we support people? And as people live longer, they need more support. It's not a matter of the treatment is over. Go back up and pick up the pieces. There are many changes that happen, physical, emotional. The family dynamics change. And Chai is there every single step of the way. We carry on... Each person gets what they need. They're not told after six months that it or after, let's say, bereavement, you know, you're on your own. We are there whilst there's a need. And thank God we have the most wonderful, wonderful, dedicated team. We have, uh, I say, over 120 therapists. We have over 100 volunteers. And it is a privilege to be able to help people at the most challenging time of their lives. Sure. And... There are many, many challenges. And when you come up with them, I hear the Rebbitsons' words of encouragement. Many years ago, she, and my husband and I were, were uh, wrote to the Rebbe with a, with a particularly, we were thinking of moving home. We weren't sure what to do. And the Rebbe wrote back to my husband that we should do whatever your wife thinks she's right to do because she's the mainstay of the home. And I was very perturbed by that. I thought, I can't make this decision. It's much too big. And such was the closeness of the relationship that when I called her, I said to the Rebbe, look, the Rebbe said, I make the decision. I cannot do it. It's too big. I need the Rebbe to say yes or no. He has to tell us what to do. And I, and I can hear her life laugh. She had this expression, bravo, bravo, when she approved of something. And she said, bravo, bravo. If my husband says you can make the decision, you can do it, you can do it. And... Over the years, this was 31 years ago, I, every time there's a challenge and some are bigger and some are smaller, I hear her words of encouragement. But Mashiach, I like everything we believe is, is Bishet, is divine providence. What she said to me, bravo, bravo, you can do it, you can do it, is just not for me. It's for everyone. Because if you could sum up almost the Rebbe and the Rebbetson's approach to life and to everyone, was that each and every person has tremendous potential. Sometimes we don't know what we can do, and often it's tested during, through challenges, but everybody has tremendous potential to develop, to grow, to find talents they didn't know existed, 
to nurture them, to build them, and not just for themselves, but for their loved ones. And I think that is the, the message that gives such strength and hope to so many people. Unbelievable. That is so moving, Louise. It brings to mind, actually, what the Rebbe said after the passing of the Rebbeson. He quoted, I believe it's in Proverbs, that it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a big feast. And the conclusion that King Solomon brings is, Why is it better to go to a tragic place? Because the living will take to heart that high word. And what does it mean the living shall take to heart? As you say, your mom said, an experience that we go through, everything comes from Hashem, and Hashem is loving, He's our loving Father. It's very often difficult to see the love in the smack, in the crushing blow. But Torah tells us the living shall take to heart from seeing a house of mourning. In other words, the difficult things must spur us on to high, to live, and to help others live. Please, God, we all are able to draw strength from this example, which, I mean, the word shining pales in comparison to, this is an example of incredible, incredible possibility. Please, God, we're able to give the Rebbe and the Rebetzin a tremendous amount of nachas and pleasure. Their greatest pleasure was to see people happy, truly happy, spiritually fulfilled, physically comfortable, healthy and happy and complete. May Hashem help us all. May He bless us all to be able to bring Him the ultimate nachas, the nachas He's waiting for the nachas that each one of us uniquely contributes. And in return, may Hashem bless us with the ultimate blessing, sending us Mashiach to heal, to bring joy, to bring peace. Good Shabbos. Amen.